0: It is tempting to think that more leadership or some kind of improved leadership will help us and our organizations work better. But what if leadership was part of the problem instead of the solution? What if our understanding of it only maintained principles of the past, which no longer serve us well? That's what I explore in my book, Dare to Unlead, and today in this podcast. Join me and my guest, a person quoted in the book or in tune with its values, to learn from them what it takes to unlead and succeed together. Welcome to the eighth episode of the Dare to Unlead podcast, where we explore with selected guests some of the key topics addressed in Dare to Unlead, the book. The world of work and leadership is in crisis because its fundamentals inherited from Taylorism, rooted in archaic beliefs about leaders and authority, do not work as well anymore. We set the scene in the first two episodes of the podcast, and then we delved into values around which we can reinvent a better practice of leadership, better for people and for business. From episodes three to five, the notions of power dynamics, constructive rebellion, and digital empowerment helped us understand the effects of greater liberty at work. We then turn to equality, with Susan Skrupsky advocating in Episode 6 for equal respect across our diversity. In Episode 7, John Husband and Harold Joshi explain how democratic networks make knowledge flow and grow trust. But how do we use networks at work in practice? This is what, as a closing discussion on the principle of equality, we are about to address now. My guest today is Sharon O'Dee, a digital strategist, an experienced web professional, an award-winning entrepreneur specializing in digital workplace and strategy who has lived and worked on three continents. She is a talented communicator, a writer, an acclaimed speaker, a researcher, a geek, a top influencer on the future of work and much more. Sharon is the co-founder of Lithos Partners, a boutique digital communication and collaboration consultancy. I love her presence on social media. How I wish I had her sense of words. Sharon's posts are witty, clever, varied, and funny. They can be brave too. She doesn't hesitate to assert positions, which for a woman in particular on the internet is not always easy. Whether she posts pictures of Amsterdam, where she lives, or of a white sandy beach, where she was on a vacation, or whether she challenges a large enterprise on its hypocrisy regarding fair pay across genders, Sharon always does so with finesse and humor. No wonder why her fan club on social media has grown so big. And if you were drawn to her because she's funny, you will stay because Sharon's jolly character rests on a lot of substance, a strong sense of purpose and a deep understanding of relational dynamics at work in an era of social media. Sharon, I'm so glad you could come. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the book. So I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to to dive into it. Super. Uh, And thank you for a very flattering
0: introduction. (laughs) Uh, So Sharon, let me start with the very first question I ask uh, all my guests. What is your art, the professional practice that you would describe as unique to you or that you perform in a unique way? What is your art and what led you to it?
1: Like everything in my life, I think where I've ended up is a series of, of happy accidents. Um, I've never been one for kind of forward planning. Um, and I thought really hard about how to answer this question. Thankfully I'd had some pre-warning from listening to our earlier episode. And actually I think the thing that makes me different is my ability to navigate complex organisations. So I've worked in, like you, I've worked in many of them over the years in, in, in banking and government and, and the corporate sector, and actually trying to make things happen inside complex organization is itself a skill you need to understand the dynamics of, of many of the things you talked about in fact about power but also about some of the very real barriers that exist and those could be regulatory but they're often in, to do with culture or practice or expectation and actually it, when you're delivering big programs or making any sort of change happen inside organization you have to base it in the reality of how it currently works so i know perhaps the startup space they often sneer at the corporate sector around you know why does nothing happen It's because there are real barriers to making things happen in large organizations. So when I work with with banks or with big corporate organizations, actually, it's working within those boundaries and the reality of how they currently exist. And I think that where I've managed to find my little niche is being able to make real change happen inside complex organizations and understanding the needs of complex organizations.
0: Sharon, you won an award 10 days ago. That's one more to your already impressive collection. But this one is a bit special, right? What is it about?
1: Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I did stand-up comedy for the very first time. And it was a PowerPoint-based comedy night. very near where I live in Amsterdam at the Boom Chicago Comedy Club. And I was really, really, actually, surprisingly proud, but also surprised that I won Best Act because it was my first time ever doing anything like this. But the reason I did it, I mean, I think I'm reasonably funny and I do a lot of PowerPoint. So I figured I could bring those two things together. But actually, part of what I tell other people is, this stuff is hard, standing in front of other people and making your, telling your story and making your voice heard and being present and being visible, is difficult and it's, uh, you know, I can talk about that a bit more in a minute, but it gets easier the more you do it. When you kind of learn to live with the emotions, feel your feelings and yeah, it's terrifying and I'm like, okay, well, I tell other people. So I have a little um, initiative I've spun up outside work, which is about helping women and other underrepresented groups, particularly in technology and digital to find their voice and tell their story. And I always tell other people, just go and do it. Do it for five minutes, then next time do it for 10. And the next time, before you know it, like a bit like me, the first time I did it, I was terrified. And now I stand in front of 200 people in a comedy club and try and make them laugh. And as with all these things, it's all about practice, but it's also all about, it's okay to be scared about it. It's okay to feel nervous, but go with it and eventually you get better at it and you got more comfortable with doing it as well. So that was why I did it. And hopefully other people found me funny.
0: Someone on social media in the comments asked uh, what was next for you? Fighter pilot, uh, high wire walking, <laughs> any such plans?
1: Uh, well, definitely the fighter pilot is out because I'm partially sighted. So i am um, yeah, barred from ever having a pilot's license? It is about the only thing I am barred from doing as a result. But well, no, definitely not a fighter pilot. Uh, if you'd ever seen me play video games, you wouldn't get in any kind of vehicle with me. <laughs> So, But actually, it's one of those things that is, it, it, well, that, I'm sure that person was joking, but actually, it, it's unusual when you get to, you know, our middle state of life to genuinely do new things and learn new things. And actually, it's weirdly rewarding whenever I do it. So, you know, I've moved to a new country, I'm learning a new language. I've pushed myself out there and learned to do comedy. And, and actually, you can still learn new things at every state of life.
0: And I think that is sort of an important lesson. Uh, for me over particularly the last few years to grow in that (laughs) way. That's amazing. Your LinkedIn bio states that you are passionate about the power of social web to drive positive change of services, organizations and of communities. What do you mean? What is the kind of positive change you have in mind? Well, you touched on quite a lot of this in the book actually around
1: actually when we work as networks as opposed to working in hierarchies, we can identifying the opportunities, but identifying new ways of doing things. And actually, I, I know from my experience working with organizations of all sizes, that once you start to build those communities, you can start to share ideas and to build best practices. And that could be within your local community. And I've seen it in that context. It can be across a calls uh, maybe globally, but inside organizations, particularly when we do build and use our networks effectively, we're able to identify better ways of doing things. We're able to speed up our processes, we're able to Think at scale, let's tap into uh, to new knowledge and ideas in ways that simply aren't possible in in the old ways of work. So I, I mash, I'm just really nerdy about that kind of thing. You know, uh, I came of age just as you know social networks were coming into being, the very earliest social networks. They've always been part of who I am. I was probably on the social web before it was really even called that. You know, in the early early kind of bulletin board kind of days. Then I've always been fascinated by the opportunity they present to connect people with ideas and to connect people with opportunities and to, to inspire people to, to tap into something bigger than themselves. And I think that's a huge opportunity for, for organizations
0: and for communities. Hmm. And Sharon, do you feel the web is still social? Haven't uh, advertising, algorithms, monopolies, uh, polarization and disinformation warfare, just to name a few, crushed The sort of uh, uh, the original hopes associated with social media is it behind us or is it still present and what keeps you hopeful if you still are
1: that is a really really good question and um, i'm sure at the time of speaking by the time this comes out in a week or whatever things will have changed but i've been watching kind of the backlash on twitter uh, in particular uh the, the current chaos that is reigning there and actually it's been quite interesting to see that there is that They're trying to impose those top-down dynamics, and there's almost been a really strong fight back, and that has made me surprisingly positive about the future of the social web. You know, I'm not necessarily positive about the future of Twitter, but that need to connect away from those corporate interests has really strongly come through in a way that perhaps it didn't six months ago. Those challenges that you raised, though, are real, and we must recognize those, that, you know, freedom on the web is absolutely not a given. And that some voices are always going to be amplified more than others. And we can see that in really draconian ways in places like in China and other places where your access to the web is more restricted. But also that your ability to pay to be heard um, is also uh, becoming increasingly clear that not all voices are equal online. But I remain positive insofar as the, the democratization of the web has not gone away and that Actually, surprisingly, some of the recent activity on Twitter almost reminded me of that, that need, that people's need to connect and to share will always be greater and
0: there will always be ways to fight back. Hmm. So Sharon, let's turn to the workplace. W- what is, in your opinion, an optimal digital employee experience? How would you describe that? What does it take for an organization to provide that kind of experience and what does it gain from it? Oh, okay. You've got some great questions. Yeah. i thought about it. Right. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so for me, the option um,
1: employee experience is one that, oh, there's so many elements to this, I suppose, but it's actually, it's about providing a good quality user experience um, in terms of how you interact with work. And that to me is mostly about hiding complexity that we often deal with so many different systems at work and there are an increasing number of them. In fact, in the past, it used to be that IT would buy systems and use them. And now with software as a service, every department buys in its own, you know, product services, whatever uh, apps that it might use, and then expects the employee to, to go and navigate around all of them. And that creates uh, unnecessary complexity, a lot of cognitive load, but also just a lot of confusion about where you go and what you do, uh, which we don't experience elsewhere. So there is a, a need that I guess, as we move to new ways of working, where we work primarily online. Our primary experience of work is the digital one. And often that, that can be quite poor. And there was a huge disconnect between perhaps the brand promise at work and our experience of the tools that we've used. And then, so that's just about the transactional layer, I suppose. But there is a need uh, within that transactional layer of, of how we get work done, the mechanics of doing work, as well as being able to do our kind of work based admin. But then there's also about how we connect and communicate. And again, this can be an overly complex there's a lack of clarity about how you do things, what processes are. So for me, I guess the optimal experience is one where it's designed around the employee and their needs to get things done. with that to connect, collaborate, communicate, to share, uh, to build a network, to build trust, and that there is clarity about how you do that. That there is a good quality experience in doing that. That shouldn't be unnecessary barriers to, to doing any of the things that you need to do at work. Chief amongst those is the ability to to work with other people because none of us work alone. So actually I guess this is a very long winded way of saying we need to focus much more on the individuals who are doing the work. And as organizations we have a tendency to focus on individual departments or services and how they deliver things. We need to change that balance so it's much more around that user centered thinking and also
0: group centered thinking, I suppose. Mm. And you specialize in intranets and in digital workplace technologies, employee experience and the future of work, social media and content strategy, digital innovation and transformation. What does your work look like in practice?
1: Oh, okay. So generally speaking, I tend to work with like two, two, sometimes three clients at a time. Um, we do quite a lot of, uh, so my business partner, I do quite a lot of discovery projects in particular. So we tend to work with organizations who recognize that their employee experience, their internal comms could be better, but they don't know specifically. So often we will do quite a lot of identifying some of the barriers to effective communication collaboration. And that often um, they can be technology barriers, but often they're much more related to barriers of practice, of usage, of expectation, and of experience. So we will often work with organizations to identify, you know, what their, their needs are, but not just what the needs are today, but recognizing that work itself is changing. So internet digital workplaces take even the fast ones. It, you're going to take a good year to roll something out. So we need to think about the workforce, not where it is today, where it will be in a year when you finish rolling something out, but also these programs tend to stay in place for four, five years So, where will it be in that time? The workforce is changing quite a lot. So we, how do we build in the capacity to change as well within that? So, um, I guess. Our work, Timson, involved quite a lot of research, quite a lot of talking to key stakeholders, but also helping people to identify what the potential range of options are that they could take. And that could be around new platforms and technologies. It could be around using the platforms and technologies they currently have in better ways, or it could also be about more sporting activity around kind of content, training, uh, coaching, and, and maybe around kind of leadership practices
0: as well. Mm-hmm. Have you seen a qualitative leap, a quantum leap on these subjects since the pandemic? Has your work radically changed since then or not so much? It's
1: quite interesting. Well, What I found in the early stages of the pandemic is that obviously there was a huge leap forward in use of collaboration tools. We had no tools. People were sent home. What was quite interesting is that most organizations already have the right tools. They just weren't already using them in a particularly useful way. Now, what tends to happen, we do change, is we tell people about the change, we give them the reasons for the change, and then we make the change. What happened in the pandemic is that we made the change, and then people had to get used to the why and the how. So it was, it was the opposite way round from our usual kind of plan change curve. What we're now finding, actually, it's meant that on the one hand, suddenly everyone recognizes how important workplace technology is, which is, you know, I think great for work in general and great for me as a business, fantastic. But actually what we're finding now is that a lot of the work we're doing is always unpicking the damage that uh, yeah we obviously we had no choice people had to go and keep the engine running as it were but actually it's suboptimal we know that the, you know we need to fix some of the practices so actually quite a lot of the work that i'm doing lately has been really focused on understanding how tools are currently used and what's suboptimal about that around kind of teams usage often we find that organizations will have kind of a a social network like Yammer, Viva Engage, but they're not really—they haven't worked out what they're using it for, and they could be using it a lot better. And at the same time, there are gaps in in how they communicate and collaborate. So it's almost having to go back and do the strategy that you would have done early on, but with the adoption curve already completed. If that makes sense, there's a lot of actually. Let's go back and relearn, or when you're actually borrowing your phrase, kind of unlearn how to how to use these and, and learn again around how we might make ourselves more visible, more open, more collaborative using the tools that we already have mm. rather than in the past quite a lot of the work I did tended to be building a business case for investment in a new platform and that tends to happen a lot less now.
0: Mm. And typically what makes an organization realize they have a problem and reach out to you? Uh, I'd love to
1: say that it's because they've got low engagement scores and that is oft, That's sometimes the case but generally realistically they're, they're driven by uh, their a business objectives as it should be so you know is there a reputational operational risk attached to your failure to act we know that when you're working in a corporate it's really if if they're going to either lose money or fail to or miss an opportunity that's when you know there is a much sharper focus on the need to make these things happen more effectively so it tends to be less the attrition but more of the recognizing the potential opportunity cost of failing to act the other thing i'm finding is we are still in a really really tight labor market and w- people are recognizing that the world of work is changing. And what we've failed to do a lot of the time is make our our ways of working catch up with the reality of how work has changed. So it's not just about, you know, working from home and hybrid working, but actually the fundamentals of work, you know, the relationship between people and work is changing. It's becoming less, uh, less characterized by loyalty, but much more transactional. And, you know, people have portfolio careers they maybe do two or three jobs at the same time and that didn't used to be the case in the past people's tenure with organizations has has shrunk and that's not just around with a job you, you know people do short-term contracts and there is a need to get people up to speed much more quickly so i have heard of one organization recently that found that its time to full productivity was 18 months but um the average tenure was 12 months so On average, people were unproductive, which is an unhelpful place to be. How can we narrow that so that if we recognize the reality that people are going to cycle in and out of organization much more quickly, we need them to be productive in a month or two months. And some of that is, uh, employee experience is really central to that. I need to be able to hit the ground running and find the things that I need to do and be able to connect and be productive as soon as possible. We can't
0: wait 18 months in the new reality of work. Mm. And it's not enough to adopt tools like Microsoft Teams or other video conference or instant messaging systems um, to claim we are a social organization, right? Absolutely.
1: So I, I really love this as a theme in your book. It's actually about your ability to tap into the network and the longer you're with an organization, the more of the network you have. So how do we enable people to tap into the network faster? So we know, the longer you ask somebody, you know who to ask or who will know who to ask. That's not scalable. So actually how do we create scalable networks that can be activated at speed? And that's where, yes, the tools are important, but actually so is the culture. And it's critical that, and also there's people have to navigate. Again, one of the things that you've pointed to is about this power dynamic that people are given the agency to tap into the network as well in order to be
0: productive, be collaborative, to share their ideas, to, uh, to contribute. And thinking about tools and how tools shape uh, behaviours, do you see uh, closed or private or permission-based online communities as a second best solution after open communities or as a step in the right direction or as something that slows down the cultural evolution towards a networked way of work? This is going to be such a answer,
1: but the the answer is, of course, it depends. I like to believe that when you work with big, especially complex organizations in, you know, regulated settings, so you have to work within the realities of how they work. And there are reasons that you need information more. So I find it's sad that, so you know, we, we know that some, for example, when Facebook launched its workplace product, they were like, yeah, everything should be open for everyone. And you're like, well, that's nice in theory, but that's just not going to land in an organization like this one or that one. And the reality is there are reasons that, that, that some of those regulatory reasons and so some of those are kind of imaginary cultural reasons, but we kind of have to work within the reality of how those organizations work. So depending on their appetite, their ability to change, yes, in theory, I think everything should be as open as it is appropriate for it to be, but that isn't always appropriate for everyone. And I think we have to recognize that some sharing is better than none and that we are working on that path. And some sometimes it's not appropriate to be open to everyone and that's also okay too so as an example I did a piece of work with Bernardo so um the UK's biggest children charity about four or five years ago now and we ended up with a really radical change for them which was just to put their entire internet on the web and the reason for that was that they' people are really busy you know they're working with troubled families some of them in very dangerous situations they don't have time to go through you know three layers of logging on through sitfri they need to get the answer and get away again quickly. So, you know, things that we did were, how can we make the answers as easy to read as possible in quick a time as possible? But also, actually, let's just be open about what we're doing. So if someone wants to steal their child protection policy, then good. They're really proud of it. So actually, and then part of being, it's about that commitment to transparency. But that works in their context. Are there a bank that I might work with? Absolutely not. They would never do that. And there are good reasons for that. So actually, when we're thinking about our networks and our our information, my answer is probably, let's make things as
0: open as they can be, but recognizing that that isn't always open to everyone. Hmm. And talking about networks, do you think they can thrive in an organization that has an autocratic culture? What do you do when you're confronted with a network-unfriendly uh, management culture?
1: That's a really tricky one. The reality is it's It's difficult to make official networks work, actually. There's two answers to this question. So where you have organizations that don't, when leaders aren't committed to it or don't give at least tacit permission for people to to communicate into to network, then people will not do so in an open and visible way. Uh, We all know that. adage, if your manager participates, you'll do it. It gives you some sort of permission to do it. And what we often find is you get nodes within the network who are actually really, really active and make things happen, often to the distrust of their own manager, who will be, uh, you know, oddly, it particularly happens to women, I find, that younger women who will then make themselves really visible in their internal network or externally, and then find that they get pushback from from senior management because they're more visible. How do they know who you are and they don't know who I am? Well, that's because I've made the effort to make myself known. But so these power dynamics to come through. But to go back to my earlier answer, if you don't have those sort of more formal or official networks. They'll still exist because people have a fundamental, innate need to connect and share. So what you end up with instead are a, a multiple unofficial networks, and they might exist on on WhatsApp. They may exist on company tools you don't know about. They're under the radar. They're happening on on that little instance of Slack you don't think about too often. So, yes, absolutely. If if management or senior leadership do not do not actively participate or or encourage
0: this. That would make it go away, it just makes it fly. I had another question that may actually relate to that one to or to the answer you just gave, but uh, I'm going to ask you it anyway. Many people, especially young people, want a more egalitarian work culture. Uh, they dislike domination relationships and excessive control, and our work contributes to this new culture, so it's great. But as strategic consultants, we are contracted by those in power right? Those who hold the budget, mm-hmm. who do not necessarily want to release control to interact transparently in a, in a social network or, or to share power. Are you confronted with this paradox? And if so, how do you solve it?
1: This is, um, I think, it has been bubbling under for about 10 years now, That there is a, a fundamental disconnect between our expectations of agency of having a voice as citizens, but particularly as consumers. And if you've grown up in a consumer society, which is pretty much everyone under about fifty now, where you you know have almost infinite choice in all things, and suddenly you come to work and you don't you know you you don't have choice over what you do, what tools you use. You don't have a huge amount of choice over how you get things done. You might need to follow fixed processes depending on the type of role that you have, and there is a disconnect there. that I think that is growing over time. So it is a challenge that we are coming across, and it is actually a challenge to the fundamentals of collaboration as well on the one hand we give people company providing tools and tell them we need them to use that and there's a good reason for that because we need people to collaborate in the same place in order to get some of that value out of it but then we take away some of the agency that people have to make choices about how they get things done there is a disconnect there i think but it is one that is starting to become more apparent as people want to make much more active choices about both the work they do their need to connect with Organizational purpose to have a lot more choice about when and where they work, and and how they get work done, and um and, and their their freedom to to associate at work as well and to have a voice. So there's definitely it's a growing there's a growing expectation gap between an organizational need for control and an employee demand need for a greater agency.
0: Mm. And do you feel leadership teams or buyers are more open to? new perspectives on power power sharing and all the other consequences of these new social tools frankly no i feel like the reality is people here at the top
1: of the pyramid they got where they are they in the old system as it were so they over indexed them its benefit because it worked for them i think that's increasingly becoming challenged over time as as newer generations come into the workplace and we're we're probably not far off being four generational workforce as, as Gen Z starts to join, join those, and they're a little bit older. And actually, we were, we are starting to see that tension there between what people's expectations and and that of of maybe the more senior levels of, of leadership in terms of how the extent to which people work can be to a degree a
0: democracy. Mm-hmm. I heard you uh, refer to the importance of governance a few times. Can you give an example of some unadapted governance that prevented adoption of social tools or, in an organization or, on the contrary, of a positive change in governance that unlocked adoption?
1: Right. So one organization that I worked with, again, they, they, I think they've had Yammer for a good few years, but like a, a lot of organizations have Yammer, they've not quite worked out what they... What, what it was for, what need it served, you know, it, like a lot of things it's in there. Microsoft Mix, people generally got the idea that enabling things to have walls was, was a good idea, but they hadn't quite worked out giving it some clear purpose. So actually in this organization, we did a little bit of work with them, to, as I often do, to identify barriers to communication. And um, this is a analogy I, I, I overuse, but one of the things that I find when I work with organizations is that, I think like in a murder trial, there'll be three things that a jury will look for when, when they're try looking to convict the that you know, the accused. And that is does the person have the means, motive and opportunity to participate? The means is do they have physically have physically have access to, you know, commit the crime? But in this instance it's to participate in on your social network, the opportunity is do they have time to do it? You know, were you available on that day? And then the other is of course motive. And then often what I found is they three of those were missing, but often it's two. So actually what we've in this case is there was a disconnect between giving people the principle of being able to participate but not giving many of their workers an actual window in their day in which they were to do it. So actually from a governance perspective, we actually have to think about how do we free up people to do that? And that could be ensuring that they have an adequate opportunity to participate, which actually meant having a lot less control over people's time um, and ensuring that people had more they had the ability to choose to participate at a time of their own choosing because you can't tell people have 10 minutes to go and participate on the social network because it simply doesn't work that way. You need to do it when you feel like doing it or it isn't social. And actually, what it meant was we had to talk to that organization about rethinking some of the control they had around individuals and, the, and how they manage their day or this kind of social connection simply wouldn't happen. So within this particular uh, audience group, which made up quite a lot of their workforce, actually we recognized that if they wanted to have the benefits of, of becoming more social, we had to actually rethink some of the some of the rules they
0: had around individual behaviors and time management hmm. about 10 years ago i remember a common objection to using internal social networks at work was i don't have time or this is only for for people who have time to spare do you still hear this objection often oh absolutely I often
1: find when you do, you know, network um, analysis on some of these, you identify kind of internal influences and they are people who spend quite a lot of time on that, but they often generate a huge amount of value, but it does tend to be a flashpoint. So you'll have internal experts and they're often internal experts on something really specific. Uh, you know, they can answer your questions on a, a like an internal system that a couple of, you know, that lots of people use, but they're the organizational nerd on it. That person is, is probably saving help desk thousands of hours a year with their contribution, but there will be others who are, you know, they're connected, they're nodes, you know, they know who to get from you to one, from one person to the other. Uh, but it is a very common objection, which is if that person's got so much time to be on there, are, are they not doing their job properly? It's something I absolutely still hear. And it's, again, it can be a flashpoint between individuals and managers thinking about some of the, the points that you raised in the book around power dynamics. That, you know, if a lot of middle managers love to act, instinctively want to act as gatekeepers of information. The social network stops them being that gatekeeper because people can access individual or can access information as and when they wish, often more information than their their manager or leader may have. So some of those objections about time are actually, when you dig down, objections to challenging their role as a gatekeeper. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, a final question about the workplace. Uh, in your work practice with clients, are you tool agnostic or do you have a preference for some tools? As if we had a choice, really, because <laughs> there's a dominant position from one of the players, as we know. But uh, what is your position on that?
1: I and we as, as of Partners are very, very strictly um, uh, tool agnostic and platform agnostic. As you know, there is a, a big dominant player in the market, but that doesn't mean that there are myriad ways to augment that particular, yeah, the, lots of organizations are uh, of Microsoft to SharePoint houses for good reasons, but that doesn't mean that there are, there's a very vast ecosystem of tools that you can use alongside that that can improve your experience in multiple ways. And so for some organizations, that's right. And, and still in other organizations, we, we do recommend non-Microsoft solutions. They do still <laughs> exist. And they are appropriate in certain contexts. Uh, yeah, I mean, it does feel a little bit like the whole, there's a lot of consolidation happening within the market generally, and I suspect we're going to see a lot more of that over the, over the years ahead. So a small example, but soon just bought out WorkVivo in order to have more of a holistic kind of employee experience offering. I get in the sense there's probably going to see a, a lot more of that over the coming years, but at the moment, there is actually a a fairly thriving, thriving market in, in tools and platforms across con- uh, the collaboration and communication space. And yes, Microsoft is the dominant player, but there that there is still a lot of choice out there.
0: <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> now moving away from the workplace, and that will be one of my last questions to to you, Sharon. How easy is it to be a woman with an opinion on the internet? Any advice you would give to other women? Oh, uh, I, I actually that's a really good question. With that.
1: So I think I'm in a relatively privileged position in that I don't work for a big company. When I did, I used to keep a lot more of my opinions under wraps. So originally I worked for the government, so it was actually my contract. So I wasn't allowed to have an opinion on anything political or even that could be considered political in in the public arena. And then I went to work for a big bank. And you can make assumptions about the politics of a lot of people who work at the banks. They tend to be quite conservative and I'm generally not. So actually I've kind of taken it it took me a little while to get used to having the opportunity to have a voice on the internet and um but now I love it. But I also feel like I can use that privilege on behalf of others who maybe don't have the freedom to act in the same way that I do. But it is difficult. And, and there's lots of studies that show that women on the internet are more likely to receive abuse. I tend to just mute and block liberally on all social networks of anyone. You know, you have an absolute right to say what you like. I'm under no obligation to read any of it. And I think that's the, that's the only way in which um, you can maintain your sanity on the internet. or you, you have relatively strongly held opinion.
0: Wonderful. So now is my last question to you, Sharon. What would you say to someone who hasn't read Dare to Unlead yet, apart from read it? So I really enjoyed this book. I thought it really
1: challenged uh, a lot of my thinking, even as someone who's worked with a lot of corporates. But the thing that I really enjoyed about it is I am, I guess, a slightly frustrating academic uh, under the surface. I really enjoyed quite how well referenced and researched it was, both from you know some of the conversations with practitioners but also its theoretical underpinning in some of the literature so i don't read a lot of business books but this felt like it, it had a really nice kind of solid base of theory uh, of uh, but also speaking to practitioners about their real experiences of challenging some of our, our expectations around leadership uh, particularly in the corporate space so i feel well worth reading and i very much
0: recommend Thank you Sharon so Sharon it's been a real pleasure and a wonderful opportunity for me and our listeners to know you better and to know about your work all references and links uh, to to whatever videos books uh, articles social media references will be posted in the the podcast notes I thank you so much it's been it's been great and I will keep following you with a lot of uh, enthusiasm on social networks thank Thank you, Sharon.
1: Likewise. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, thank you for, for many years of good conversation across the social network.
0: Great insights. Thank you all for listening. You'll find more info in Dare to Unlead, the book, and all links in the podcast episode description. And now, what else? Action! To explore further and apply these ideas to your own context reach out to me at we need social.com. let's unlead together.